Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. We're here today with our friend Susan K. Williams-Smith. Susan is a pastor, author, and musician interested in the relationships between politics, religion, and race. She's interested in spiritual community where the needs of people are met and where they are encouraged to become engaged in changing systems and policies which have caused their spiritual, economic, and social oppression. She's a graduate of Occidental College and Yale Divinity School. While a pastor, she worked with inner-city kids in an arts camp, teaching with them music, dance, acting, and drawing. Susan's books include The Book of Jeremiah, The Life and Ministry of Jeremiah A. Wright, Jr., With Liberty and Justice for Some, The Bible, The Constitution, and Racism in America, and also Crazy Faith, Ordinary People, Extraordinary Lives. You can learn more about Susan and all of her work at CandidObservation.com. So, Susan, uh, so great to see you again. Uh, congratulations on all your work, and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, it's always great to, to talk with you. I love, you know, the work that you've done in our conversations, and, you know, really glad that we're able to uh, talk about kind of a, a different, um, you know, aspect of things with uh, Find Your Next Calling. Um, but first, is there anything I left out that you want people to know about you? No, it's good. You hit, you hit all the nails on the head, so I'm good. Why don't you tell people where you live? I live in Columbus, Ohio, where it is not snowing, by the way. I, I asked Brian before we got on air, but it was still snowing in New Jersey. He said, you know, yes. like, but we don't have any snow. We, it's looking gray. It's going to rain, but no snow. We're good. Hey. <laughs> so before we get into um, talking about, you know, next calling, let's talk about some of your books. Um, could you go through each of them and just kind of... Uh, Explain to folks what each of them is about. Um, yeah, I my one of my my very first book that I got published was a children's book, Carla and Annie, which I'm really trying to read right now. Really make it a children's book. To how do you you know it's about a little girl, little black girl who was told by her little white friend that she was black, plain old ugly black by her the little white girl's mom, and so that's just such a, a and that happened to me. It's actually autobiographical so i'm trying to write it in a way that'll put the idea forward of how that affects little black kids yada 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 so i'm trying to do that then i wrote from calvary to victory which is was a series of linton devotions actually um to get people to concentrate on some of the things that we as christians need to concentrate on and then i wrote um uh, uh, crazy faith uh, ordinary people extraordinary lives which is one of my favorite it's about the things that you know what faith looks like and why you really can't call it crazy because you you do things that, that nobody else thinks you can do or that should be done and then i wrote i don't remember all of them i wrote uh, the book of jeremiah which is the life and ministry of jeremiah Wright. um I, I, his ministry is one of the most powerful i've ever encountered and i was just so angry during the um 20 uh 20 2008 election but his name, his ministry was sullied by, you know, the the way a soundbite was taken out of context. I hated that. So I decided I was going to write a book to talk wow. about what the ministry was. And then I wrote, um, I don't know, I'm getting them all mixed up, but then with, with Liberty and Justice for Some, which is um, about how the Bible, the Constitution, and the Constitution have worked in conjunction with each other to help proliferate and to propagate racism in this country. And now I'm thinking about going one step further and talking about the Bible, um, the, the the Constitution, and the media, 
in continuing to support um, uh, racial uh, enmity in this country because the, the media has been just despicable. Um, but, you know, people go after headlines and money and profit, and so that's what happens. So that's pretty much, I think I got all of them. <laughs> well, the one I'm the most familiar with is uh, with Liberty and Justice for Some. And for those of you who um, follow the um, How to Heal Our Divides blog, you know that I've taken several excerpts from that book, you know, and use them as blog articles um, to, you know, help get the word out about Susan's work, uh, because I just thought that, you know, was such an, an important topic um, and uh, so many good points out of that book. Um, can you share with folks how that book came about? Yeah, I, I love to tell that story because I was reading, I like to just read history in general, and I like to read the history of, of religion and racism, all that kind of stuff. And I was reading um, this guy, Sam Bowers, who was the Grand Wizard of the KKK, um, you know, it describes how he had a religious experience. It was his Damascus Road experience. That's what he said. And he said God kind of knocked him off his horse and and told him that he was to save white people. I thought, wow, that's weird. And so he went on this, you know, this thing. He was doing the work of God and he was training people to, you know, hate black people, women, Catholics, you know, because he that's what God told him to do. Hmm. And what bothered me most about it was that he was a devout Christian. So the word Christian now just just aggravates my soul. But um, he was a devout Christian. So he went to church every Sunday. He was probably an officer, you know, and I thought, but but in between church services, he was training people, white men primarily, to beat and to kill black people. And he would have them in Bible studies, and he would have them fast before they went out on one of their lynching Expeditions, and then and then what what would really get me? I didn't see this written, but you know it's true that he could have gone to a lynching on a Saturday night and shown up for church the morning suit and even help serve communion. And you know what? That just ticked me all the way off. So that's why I got started in doing that. It just still bothers me when I think about it. And so many people now are like the same way. But what I concluded in with liberty is that there's it has to be two gods because the god that 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 um sanctions bigotry of any kind against women against black people against brown people islamophobia the lgbtq that's not the god that is described in the bible or the bible or the god that was taught to me by my sunday school teachers and so you know there's two different guys and you know you can't you can't say if you have a group of people who say they're Christian and they try to follow all the things that Jesus said to do, which are not fun to do, by the way. Everybody knows that. And you have another group of people who call themselves Christian, but the only time they mention Jesus is at Christmas and Easter. But other than that, they're in their own little world and they're ha- uh, forming their own uh, 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 policies and stuff. And they call it religion, but it's not religion. It's ideology. That's two different gods, two different gods. And they do not intersect. So. Well, is it two gods or is it God and Satan? <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. I'm trying to be nice. <laughs> but, but I think that the, the myth, that we live in myths, and so many of us need to believe in the myth of like American exceptionalism yeah. or myth of Christianity or the myth of democracy. It, it soothes our souls. So now even, even though the threat of authoritarianism is right in front of us, many people are still living in the, um, the myth that we are an exceptional country and the myth that nothing bad as has happened in Europe and in other countries could ever happen here. So they're not thinking it through and they're not thinking it through that 
like Russia or some of our other um, enemies, have nuclear weapons. And they could take us out like that. They could take us out. And people are not thinking about that. They think that we are immune and that we are so great and so powerful. that That's a myth. That's a myth. And and to think that um, uh, many people, you know, think that their God, you know, would or e- would even ordain that, that God would be displeased with democracy, that God would be displeased that, you know, some policies are being put in place to help all of the people and not just a small group of people, that God would not like that. I just, Brian, it just boggles my mind. It just boggles my mind. So what I come to understand is that there is Christianity, which is a certain set of beliefs. It's not doesn't tell you what to believe. Somebody made a point in one of the books I read. Doesn't Jesus never tells you what to believe? Jesus tells you how to live. He doesn't have all these rules like the Pharisees had that what six hundred four thousand. He doesn't have all that. Just how are you supposed to live? And you have to live in communi- in communication and in community with other people. What the other folks are practicing is is a complete. Uh, disavowal of that and so i just it just gives me the creeps and so i I keep poking my head into it and looking into it more well i mean you know the ku klux klan may not be as strong as it used to be but uh the whole white christian nationalism right it's just hard to believe how distorted you know christianity at least that flavor of christianity has become and and the thing is is that it's been there for such a long time. I just read, finished reading uh, Rachel Maddow's book, Prequel or Prequel, mm-hmm. and she talks about in the 1930s, you know, when we were on the on the verge of being going into World War II. There's always been a, extremely large contention of people in this country who have not liked democracy. And so the fact that, that we were, might be going into the war, they didn't like that. And there's this guy, Father Coughlin, who was Father Coughlin, he's a priest, um, had this huge, you know, following of people. And he pushed fascism. He pushed all that. Um, you have Henry Henry Ford, who was so much, uh, so he was a respected um, anti-Semite, meaning that the Germans, Hitler himself, uh, respected Henry Ford's racism so deeply that it said that in his office he had a framed picture of Henry Ford that hung mm-hmm. behind his head. You know, what are we talking about? Wow. So the myth of American exceptionalism has been with us for a very, very long time, but we don't know that. We don't read the history, so we don't know that. So what that huh. can do is make you now feel like a, a sense of panic. Oh, has this never happened again? It has happened, and people have stepped up to to fight it. The difference between then and now is that you have the huge millions of people who who want the former president, regardless of what he's done. But the key thing is that he was the former president, and that has given him um, some some leeway, I think, uh, that maybe other people might not have had. And he doesn't have the decency or the respect enough for the office of the presidency or the state of this country to just, you know, just, just sit down. Right. Um, and he does, and he's too arrogant to think that, you know, he needs to ask for a pardon. He doesn't want to be pardoned. He wants to be in office again and he wants to destroy the country. But people living in the myth of American exceptionalism think uh, it won't be so bad. In spite of the fact he's not even making any sense. He's caught, he talks about cognitive impairment. Yeah. But he, make any sense he acts like a um a middle school kid i remember the guys in my middle school class acting like he acts and people are just loving him so that's what makes it a little bit different the fact that he was 
uh, of a president and that he has stacked the courts in his fate, the Supreme Court in his favor. And all, so it makes it a little hairy. But, you know, at this moment, I would have to just call on crazy face and believe that there are enough people who are opening their eyes finally and seeing and starting to push back and have made determinations, even if they won't say it out loud, that they're not going to vote for him. That's the only mm-hmm. thing, you know, that's the only thing that keeps me sane. Well, all of the recent re- elections, you know, have shown that trend you know so i'm hopeful for november and um maybe if we can get past that um we can ultimately be we'll never be done with this but hopefully it'll decrease in um, significance well i don't know that it'll decrease but what because it's been with it's been a part of the american fabric for so long but perhaps this whole experience will um will will sensitize people to the fact of it's of it's it's like a worm you know that whole bigotry that whole racist that whole white supremacist thought and and practice system it's a worm in our in our government in our country and it's always been there so hopefully this will make people stop and think mm, and more people want to stop and think and study some people are never going to stop and think and study but you know the, the 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 key is that people have to read and people have to know what's going on so number one they don't get really um, so bent out of shape with this that they just give up hope because that's what uh, fascists want you to do stop hoping but then two do actions that are knowledge-based, you know, knowledge-based. They're not acting on pure emotion, but they're acting on something that, you know, this is what happened, this is what was done, this is what we need to do. And people, I think, need to read uh, the, this thing called Project 2025. It lays out what the conservative plan yes. is for taking over the country. Yeah. People sit down and read it. Get yourself a glass of something or a cup of something <laughs> and sit down and read it to know what you're dealing with. Because again, if you don't know what you're dealing with, you you do stay in the myth. You know, it's yeah. the myth. So yeah. I'm hoping. Well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about finding uh, a new calling. Um, from a career perspective, you had a long and successful career as a pastor, and then decided to go off on your own and start some new things. So um, have you reflected on that process, how you went about it, and why? Well, I, I, I started on a new path because some, some devastating things happened in my life. And so, you know, it was, it was almost, I was forcing myself to do something so that I would remain um, connected um, to what I know my call to be. I know I'm called, you know, to be working in the area of ministry. What it looks like has changed. And I clearly believe um, so I have this thing called Crazy Faith Ministries, and and it's very small, and I and I work it, but I work it to to strengthen me. If that makes any sense, to strengthen my spirit, which was just so whittled down by the things that happened in my life. And so I I worked it, and you know what? After ten years of of doing this, I'm finally beginning to find my stride. You know, I'm I'm finally beginning to breathe again and to um, open my eyes and and see and ask God. Okay, so. What do you really want me to do? Because I have the skills. You're right. I, I was a journalist. I love being a journalist. Um, and I'm a writer. And inside of me, I keep feeling like what I need to do for as many days as I have left on this earth is to really work that gift of writing. And I think that um, there are things. I, I'm not a scholar. And I say that. Be, I mean, I study a lot, but I'm not a scholar. And the reason I said that is because scholars use, like the really, um, most of them, use that really technical scholar-like language, and nobody can understand what they're saying. So, 
is that um, I can I can write in the ways that people think. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And give people something that's factual. You know, it's factual and and enough, hopefully enough um, information that will make them curious and want to know more. That's my goal. I want people to know stuff. So I do the the nonprofit stuff. That is, you know a change in the career that I had as a pastor, this is pastoring in a different way. But now I'm really looking forward to and pushing myself to do to push the writing more so that before I leave this earth, I can have written a couple of more books at least that talk about where we are and where God is and how we put all this together and you know that kind of stuff. I I dislike loftiness. Brian, I dislike lofty theology. What is that? I mean, what you know? I dislike. I'm the same way. <laughs> it's it doesn't. What does that do? I mean, how does that help you? It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you, I think that theology. Yeah, you have to have. You know, it's good that people study the theologians and, the, and and all that. But at the end of the day, the people who 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 need the theology to help are the people who sit in the pews. The people who um don't know a thing about Bart or Tillich or James Cone or they don't, and they don't care. What they need to know is who is God, where is God, when I don't find God, where is God? That kind of stuff. And my and my prayer is that I can help do that through my writing and give people eyesight to see what what the powers and principalities are that that are talked about in the Bible. You can say powers and principalities, but if people don't know what you're talking about, Right. Then it's like it's, it's, it's a phrase that goes over people's heads. So that's what I, um, um, I I'm glad that the things that happened to me in my life one day I'll tell you about not today, but one day. But but the things that happened to me um, were a good thing. They were a good thing because I think what happens what, and what happened to me is I was in a, in a, in a pastorate in a church and, and I was tired. I was so tired. I was so burned out. Um, but I was never going to leave because why? Because it was stable. It was a stable mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. Job is different than calling, right? It's just different. Um, and so uh, when I when I when I went through all of that, and I went to a, a counseling therapy, which I think everybody who's in ministry should go to, to therapy. You should have therapy like you have, you know, communion every month. But um, when I went and I went through all of that, uh, the the one thing that the chief or the head psychologist said to me, she says, you have everything you need for ministry, everything you have, it's in you. And she said, what I think is that God had to snatch you up out of there. I will never forget that. I may make that the title of one of my books before I get more into the weeds of the stuff. But I think there probably are a lot of people. You know why? Because we are shaped and influenced by what we have seen ministry be. Pastor, many people, most people who are going to seminary think they have to be pastors. But ministry is so wide open. Absolutely. Oh, wide open, and we don't think about it. So I can be in ministry as a writer. I can be in ministry as a writer of historical fiction, or even as as a novelist, if I or a playwright. That's still ministry. Why? Because we're trying to connect God to the people. Sure, that, that's what it's about. So sure. people are pastors who should not be pastors. Just like many people are singers who should not sing. Maybe <laughs> should, you know, run the board. But many people who are singers shouldn't be. And I think we again. That's a myth. That's the myth, and so the, so it it if we're if we're if for me if I'm able to to take myself out of the twenty for the twentieth century model the nineteenth and twentieth century model of ministry 
and, you know, evolve and show others through my own work how to evolve in the 21st century and how to get people to lean toward God in a time when many people are leaning away from God precisely because the 19th and 20th century models of ministry have turned so many people off. If I can do that, then I think then that's an extension of my calling. And maybe God was waiting for me to do that for all for the, for a long time. And maybe that's you know why some of the things have happened to me in my life that have. I mean, I totally agree that there's a need for different forms of ministry than what you know we only traditionally had. You know, a specific model for so many decades and generations. Yeah, and people hated to go to church. You know, so many people were so glad for COVID, right? <laughs> So many people in church all the time. COVID came and they could do this, you know, worship online. They are so glad. They didn't want to do that. They didn't like being, you know, in the church. They didn't like it and they weren't getting anything out of it. So now people have choices. They can listen to who they want to listen to and they can be fed in all these different ways. You get the broccoli here and the peas and carrots. You've got all these different ways of being fed. And then you are equipped. You are fed spiritually in order to be able to go out and do ministry in broader ways. And I actually like that. I think that is a gift of COVID. So let's talk a little bit about discernment, if we could. Um, in your experience, have you found either processes or people or, you know, reference books or what have you that have been helpful for you in terms of deciding what to do? <laughs> you know, I think it, I rely on on the still small voice. I, I really do have these times and I just, I said, oh, shoot, that's God talking to me, I, you know, and you don't want to hear it. It's God talking. I don't get it from books. I really don't. I get it from um, when I was going through my 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 thing ten years ago. I just shared with a group of people that my prayer was, "Come on, God." That was it. I didn't have any long prayers. I didn't, you know, didn't do anything. Just come on, God. I would say that a hundred thousand times a day. It seemed like, I, "Come on, God. Come on, God. Come on, God." Um, and I promise you, I felt nudges. I felt nudges, and I and I felt like. Um, it was like you know, but I felt like I was had been like glued to um, to a to a wall, like plastered against a wall of of tradition or something. And it was like when I would say, "Come on, God!" It was like you could I could almost feel God trying to pull me off and pull. And so in that period of time, my spirit was down, and um, I couldn't I couldn't really I don't know. It's like you can see, but you don't see. You know, I go back to Alice Walker and she talks about the color purple and God, God gets pissed off and he sees the color purple and you don't recognize it. I couldn't see. I really couldn't see the fullness of God's holiness. I, I can't see it all now, but I can see it a lot better. But as God pulled me away from those walls of tradition that I had been glued to, it was like slowly my eyesight began to get better, my spiritual eyesight and my spiritual hearing because my eyes began to open wider. And so I... I I was able to see the things, uh, Brian, that I was holding on to that were keeping me plastered to the wall. And I was able to understand that I didn't have to be afraid to let go of them, right? I would say, come on, God. And God would say, it was like God would say, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to tell you something. And so I would try, you know, and the more I would hear that, the more I would, you know, you breathe differently and you just begin to move in a different way. And that's what happened with me. I don't, but then the other part of that is that once for me, as I began to be, pulled away from where I was, when I would read different things, I would see God and, mm -hmm. and I would just see, oh, that's what you're trying to tell me. It's like when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. 
that's what you, you know, I would have to stop, say, oh my gosh, because it would be that clear. Things that I may have read a thousand times, all of a sudden on the thousand and first time, I saw it in the way that God wanted me to see it. And it's truly liberating. So the discernment, I think, comes to different people in different ways. Um, And I think we have to observe that and we have to honor that. Um, But for me, it's like being pulled off of the wall that I've been glued to. Mm -hmm. Wow. So um, you've been a solopreneur, you know, for a few years now. What kind of advice do you have for other people to uh, consider to do the same? You know, I think that um, I'm a. I think that people need to to be to be still and and to and to and and to lean forward to to to, to be able to discern what God is saying because God might. You know, for me, because I'm so completely an introvert, so completely. So, you know, being a, a solopreneur in one way has been good. But, you know, we are meant, we were built to be in community. And so I think that people, you know, as people are going forward, if they're, if they're leaning, if they lean toward being soloists, you know, just by themselves, that they need to leave room open, leave room open to hear God show them, direct them, and how to be in community with others because you're never going to grow if you're just by yourself. You're never going to grow. You never, you personally, inside, you're never going to grow. You know, it's like as I began to come off of that wall, I began to, to see things on television that I never saw, you know, but that's, so if I see things on television and it shows me on a, on a documentary or something that I never would have watched before, because I was too tired and too burned out. I see things now. You know what that does? It makes me curious about other things, and then I I seek out people to talk to you know about different things that now I've learned. So it it becomes like a a a, a self moving you know ball of growth. Mm. So I think that we you know if you are feeling like going on your own, you know of course to sit down and and, and compute on how you're going to live. You have to figure that out. Um, because God is good and all, but everybody needs a job. Amen. You cannot live on, God's not going to give you the money. He's not going to, so you have to be realistic, but also know that as you are now um, really discerning God and feeling God and reaching for God in new ways, that God will lead you to places and then God will kind of nudge you and say, this is what you're going to have to do in order to survive and to, and to thrive while you're doing this part of the work, your life's work that I called you to do in the first place. Amen. Amen. So kind of, let's go back to your own entrepreneurial endeavors. Um, what kinds of things do you have coming up? What are, what are you focused on in terms of major projects uh, next? Well, now we're getting ready to um, to launch. There's two things we're doing in 2024. We're going to concentrate on doing work um, with um, incarcerated and formerly incarcerated women. Mm. Uh, one of the members of our board is was incarcerated in a federal prison. And just to hear her stories uh, just, you know, just makes you understand how we just forget. We just forget that group of people. What our ministry tries to do is go to the people that are that really are marginalized and left out. We go to them. Um, and so we're going to have a series of webinars featuring some women um, who have been incarcerated and ha- having some interviews with people who are in the incarceration business mm-hmm. to talk about what's going on, to, to put, you know, things in people's minds so that ministry can be extended. So, you know, we were learning how 
I, I didn't know this, but how if you're pregnant in, 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 in a prison, they keep you in shackles while you're having a baby. What the heck is that about? How can you be in labor? You know, those types of things. Or in some prisons, there's no air conditioning in the summer and it's, and it's stupid cold in the winter. But because we have an out of sight, out of mind mentality, we don't think about it. So our our goal is to bring some of those things specifically when it comes to women, what they're going through in prison and, you know, what can we do? In this world that says they love God, how can we hate, help them? So that's the first. That's our first oh. major. The second major project comes uh, is about um, uh, gathering books, culturally relevant books, and distributing them and 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 forming like uh, book reading sessions in communities, underserved communities, so that we can let the kids read books, hear books uh, that feature kids like them. So that's the brown kids, that's the, that's the black kids, that's the Muslim kids. We need for our children to be included. And that, you know, because what we're, what we're all done is we're all fed the, you know, talk about indoctrination, we're, we're fed the, the society's cultures, which is white culture. It's a nice culture, but it's not the only culture, right? It's not. And so we need for our children to, to see themselves to um, so that they can imagine themselves and believe in themselves. So that's where we're, so we're in the, in the process now of collecting books from different sources, culturally relevant books. And then the, uh, the ongoing thing that we do, of course, is collecting socks for the homeless because socks, you know, you can't, on a day like today when it's rainy, we have people walking around with wet socks. It just gives mm. me the creeps just to think about them. People get trench foot. I mean, that's what they okay. had in World War One. Just to think that people are, are suffering like that right next to us gives me the, the creep. So that's what we're doing. Wow. Wow. That's all uh, phenomenal work. Uh, I know everyone I've ever talked to that's been involved in some type of prison ministry has just like really thought it was an amazing experience for them. Yeah, and is and you think about how many I read a statistic yesterday. I think the statistic was eighty percent of people in prison are in prison for nonviolent offenses. Eighty percent. Wow. Eighty percent. And I think that the, the the number was also high for how many people have been in jail and have not have not had a trial. Yeah, that's terrible. It's awful. That's just terrible. It's, it's, it's awful. <clears throat> so uh, we want to just kind of lift that up. Um, Good. You know. So. Good. Well, Susan, you know, thank you so much for all of your work and, you know, congratulations on all that you've done. Um, I would encourage everyone, again, to check out Susan's website, candidobservation.com. And you can also find her on YouTube uh, yeah. and, and other popular uh, locations. So, um, Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk with you. Thank you for inviting me. It's always an honor. And you keep on keeping on, Mr. Brian Elaine. I'm loving it. You're fighting that thing, and you are getting a victory. So keep on. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be back. Thanks.